topic today that I want to cover is the atonement of Jesus Christ. So if you would, let's turn to Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse 11, where the Apostle Paul says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, if you're reading from the New King James Version or for the English Standard Version, the word for atonement there is going to be reconciliation. So we'll be talking about one and the same things. And throughout this brief message, I will deal with, uh, I mean, I will use those words perhaps interchangeably. So what is communion but the celebration of the restored union of God to his community of believers, which is hosted and facilitated by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Communion is the ultimate expression of the Lord's hospitality. He invites us to his table where he serves bread and the wine, signifying his broken body and his spilt blood that he gave for the remission of our sins. So let's look at the text. The word atonement here, this is the only time it appears in the New Testament. In the when the original translators were translating the Bible into English from Greek, there was no word that properly conveyed what was meant here. And what was meant was that there was a, a union between man and God that was restored, a reconciliation, which is why you see it in those other two versions that way. So the word that that the translators came up with was atonement. And you see in the word atone, the, the two words at one, which is what is meant to convey. Being made at one. Atonement appears in the Old Testament 81 times. And it always has the same meaning, which connotes several of the following ideas. Covering, expiation, reconciliation, and propitiation. In fact, the Hebrew word for atonement and the Greek word for propitiation are one and the same. Our text, therefore, expresses that the Lord Jesus Christ is responsible for the establishment of reconciliation and not the mere offering of it. Reconciliation is the very essence of atonement. And atonement, the very source and substance of the communion celebration. If you don't mind, turn to Matthew 26. I want to show you something in Matthew 26. It's a very common, uh, very common passage that Mike, I'm sure, no doubt, will address or read later. <clears throat> in verse, in chapter 26 of Matthew, in verse 28, our Lord says to his disciples, "For this is my blood of the New Testament, or the New Covenant." which is shed for many for the remission of sins. When you see here, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, the Greek preposition here, where, where you, when we read 
for many, shed for many, is anti. And this word, except in a few instances throughout Scripture, it always means against, using the sense, but here it is using the sense of substitution. So the verse can be read this way. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed in exchange or in substitution for the remission of sins for the many. And this is how it can be read. Remission is a legal or a judicial term signifying the annulling of guilt and the removal of all grounds for wrath or, or penal uh, retribution on the part of God. That means that when Christ made satisfaction for sin, he removed the judgment that is against us from God. The penalty is removed. We will no longer be held accountable for sin in our own persons because we are held accountable in, for sin in the person of Jesus Christ who received wrath, punishment, and the penal retribution for us. So, as it pertains to Christ's atoning work, this is the only view that a true Christian must believe regarding the atoning work of Christ. To make it clear, the distinction is this. Christ either died to make salvation a possibility for you. He either died to provide another condition that man must comply with in order to be saved. Or when he died, he actually applied and established salvation to his people. <clears throat> Why is this so important to be believed? I want you to listen to this excerpt before I tell you who wrote it or who said it and wrote it. God had a mind and will to do good to humankind, but could not by reason of sin, his justice being in the way. Whereupon he sent Christ to remove that obstacle, being justice, so that he might upon the prescribing of what condition he pleased and its being by them fulfilled, have mercy on them. Now realize that at first glance, these words of James Arminius might sound good. They may sound systematic. They may sound theological. They may sound on the very surface deep. But it's not. It's very shallow and it's very wrong. And the greater part of, of Christendom believes what this this excerpt conveys and teaches. But I want to show you how bad this really is. And I'll just pick out a couple of things here because you can pretty much take this whole thing and just shred it. But he said that God had a mind and a will to do good to humankind. But he could not by reason of sin, his justice being in the way. His justice is in the way. And then he says that, well, the idea here is that God wants to do something. He wants to do something that he could not do because of something else on the part of God, meaning his justice. The issue is not so much the emphasis being put on man's sin as much as it is 
put on the justice of God being in the way. So it's an interesting way of putting it. But the most heinous aspect of this particular excerpt from Arminius is this. He says that his justice being in the way, whereupon God sent Christ to remove that obstacle. He sent Christ to remove justice. That's where it starts to get really dicey and bad. And to use a more appropriate term, it is evil. So if you ever have a doubt about whether Armenian teaching is Christian teaching and the people who believe this stuff are Christians, it should be removed with this straight from the horse's mouth. Christ was sent by God, according to Arminius and Arminianism, to remove the obstacle of justice, not to remove sin from sinners, but to remove the obstacle of justice. And then it gets worse so that he might or in order to. Upon the prescribing of what condition he pleased and is being by them fulfilled, have mercy on him. So the implication here is this. Is that. Upon God sending Christ to remove the obstacle of justice. He did so so that he might provide Another condition whereby men may be able to fulfill to fulfill that condition and then to receive the mercy of God. So the idea is this. It is not the work of Christ. It is not the work of Christ that is that is the condition, if you will. But it is a condition that comes as a result of the work of Christ that allows men to comply and thereby receive mercy on God. So. What you see here is that is that God is trying to make a way, according to Arminianism. God is trying to has made a way for Christ to provide a way to make a way for men to become righteous with God. Which is impossible. Which is impossible. The atonement is the pinnacle of our faith. In Greek or in Hebrew. The word kephar means atonement, is atonement. It is the most important word in all of Scripture, the atonement. Understanding what it means is at the very heart of what you ought to believe. And if you do not believe it this way, you cannot be Christian. Period. Let's look at what this thinking has led to in this type of doctrine. There's four points and there will be four counterpoints. The first is that the world confidently asserts that the Lord Jesus Christ offered or made the provision for reconciliation to every man universally. Second, the world confidently asserts that reconciliation and atonement is an offer that can be accepted or rejected. Thirdly. The world confidently asserts that men are reconciled to God through Christ by their own personal choice or exertion of their own will. And some do and some don't. I'd like to know still what makes the difference. Is it intelligence? Is it an academic standing at a university? 
I don't know. The world confidently asserts that not only can they accept reconciliation, but that they can also give it back. This is this is what so many of us have heard in other churches that we've sat in. That we can be saved and that we can turn it back in, basically. That we can trade it in like a car. That we can give it back. I'd like to know what would be the reason for that. What would be the reason for that? They call that being backslidden. Or it's a backslider that would do such a thing. And it seems hard to sort of reconcile the idea of backsliding with giving something back. To me, it seems to convey two totally different ideas. But yet this is what they want you to try to reconcile in your mind. But let me ask you. Is this what we celebrate and, commu- and commemorate at the communion table? Is this what you celebrate when you go to the communion table? Possibilities. Postulation. Whims and conjecture about becoming one. Imagine going to the table with the disciples and Christ says, I'm going to die that you might possibly have the smarts or the brains to come to me once I pass and resurrect. I hope this is what you come, the conclusion you come to. Because it really is reasonable and rational. No, he's talking about a work that is done on your behalf. Now, the Arminians will say, well, some people believe this, some people believe that. and this." But see, here's the thing. Dead people don't make decisions. This is what we are before coming to Christ. This is what we are. Our coming to Christ is our birth. That's why he says we must be born again from above. It is because it is because of what Christ has done that you, we, me, I, we are born again. That is the reason and the grounds. Not the other way around. The debate concerning the atonement of Christ can easily be understood when we look at what I would call the atonement of Adam. Everyone thinks that they understand what Adam did. It's in the Roman road. It's in every track that every church puts out. They understand what Adam did and his effects. However, I would posit to you that anyone who does not properly understand the atonement of Christ couldn't possibly understand the atonement of Adam. It would be impossible. So what is it? Let's look at Adam's. Let's look at the way things happen from Adam. None of us who believe would dare say that Adam made a universal offer or provision for us to be made one with Satan, sin, and the world. Where was that offer? And where is that provision indicated in Scripture? No. When Adam died, in contradistinction from the Christ dying, death passed on all men. Before we were born, before we had a will, before there was a choice, Adam died and we die with him. Seems simple enough. Number two, none of us would dare say that Adam offered sin and death in the world and Satan to us. And that we either turned it down 
or accepted it. I don't remember going to that altar call. Do you? I mean, Adam, imagine him coming to us or, or we realizing at some point that what Adam had done, like we all know what Adam did, and then going somewhere to an altar call and accepting it or choosing to reject it. Did any of us here choose to accept or reject sin? No. Absolutely not. We were born into that. No choice on our part. No deliberation. No options. No conditions on our, on our part. The only condition is that we had to be born. And we were sinners at that birth. The same condition applies to becoming to the Christian birth. The only condition there is to salvation is being born. Which has to happen. None would dare say that an offer or provision made by Adam for sin and death could have been accepted or rejected. And if so, it just so happened that all mankind chose sin and therefore all died. Now, in my opinion, that would be a pretty amazing coincidence. Given the two options, the entire human race chose sin. Here's the worst part of this scenario. That men operating from the same moral persuasion are expected to be able to accept Christ before the application of the atonement. How does that happen? <clears throat> Lastly, none of us would dare say that we accepted sin death while maintaining an ability to give it back. This would give new meaning to the idea of a backslidden sinner. That's what that would be. Now, I don't believe any such thing as a backslidden Christian. But a backslidden sinner, I mean, imagine that. What do you backslide from and what do you backslide to? Now, if somebody made the argument that being a backsliding sinner is somebody who comes to Christ, I probably wouldn't argue too much. But the reality is, it's absurd. The idea that someone can backslide from sin. This is ridiculous. But this is exactly, that th these, each of these four points that I bring up about Adam corresponds to the initial four points that I give you about Christ. Because it's one and the same. Except the first Adam had different ends. Second Adam had different ends. And better, far more superior in its effect. But the point is, is that when Adam sinned, the effect was death. When he died, the effect was death. When Christ died, the effect was life. It wasn't an option. It wasn't a provision. It was an effect. Just as Adam, just as Adam's sin was imputed to man, apart from his choice and will in the matter, so in like matter, in like manner, the righteousness of Christ was imputed to men, apart from his choice to accept. Adam's people were born sinners. Christ's people were born righteous. 
Christ did not come to procure a people for himself. He came to secure a people that were already his. His life was not given in any vague and indefinite way for the good of others, but was a very specific quid pro quo, dying in the very room of his people. In communion, we should reflect that in the death of Christ, having borne our sins on the cross, we have received expiation from our sin. By his resurrection, we have received justification. And by his intercession, we receive preservation. And to me, that is the crux of, what, of the idea. That's why being backslidden is just such a ridiculous idea, a notion, and such an evil notion. The idea that a Christian can turn his back on Christ after coming to Christ and being saved by him while he's up there interceding on our behalf, that would imply something's wrong with his intercessory powers or his abilities, his influence with God. Is this the one prayer God didn't hear that Christ prayed? It would have to be. The only condition that there is in obtaining an, an article, something you, you intend to purchase, you go to a store, you know, you go to a store, you see something you want to buy. The only thing keeping you from buying it is not having adequate payment for it. But when you pay, the object becomes yours. This is what happened in our salvation. Christ went to the store of heaven, basically, wanting to purchase salvation and purchase the remission of sins for his people. The cost was given to him. It was his blood and his broken body. But he paid it. And he took his possession. What was his possession? Us. The believers. He didn't pay and then turn around and walk out the store. And then tells the object that he bought, you decide whether or not you want to come with me. Imagine if the puppy you went to go buy did that. I don't think I want to go with this master. That's how foolish it is. I want to turn to one last verse, a couple more verses, and then we'll be done. Leviticus chapter 16. Almost done. And I'm going to turn to Luke 24 after this, so you might want to get your finger there prepared as well. Leviticus 16. This is a chapter where we are told how the Day of Atonement, that, that once a year event, was going to be carried out and what the priestly duties were. For Aaron and his line. I want you to notice one of the things here that uh, Aaron had to do. So in, ver in chapter 16, in verse 23, And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. So to give you a little background, when Aaron was to go in to do the Day of Atonement, to, to administrate the day, on the Day of Atonement, which was once a year, he would go in there with all of his priestly garments on, all the vestments, all the, you know, the meter in his head, all the glorious things of the priesthood. But when he walked into the veil of the Holy of Holies, he could not go in there with those clothes on. He had to take that off 
and put on these linen garments. And then after he performed the ceremony, he'd have to take off those linen garments and leave them there and then come back out. I want to show you the significance of this, what um, this means. Turn to Luke chapter 24. So in Luke 24, look at verse 12. Luke 24, verse 12. Peter arose. He ran to the sepulcher. And stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. I'm sure that when Peter wondered what had come to pass, he, came, he, ended, he eventually came to the conclusion that what the Lord said and what he would do was done. Just as Aaron, when he went into, into the Holy of Holies, and he performed the ceremonies for the Day of Atonement. He left those linen clothes in the, inside the veil, and he came out, signifying that his work was done. The atonement was done. Satisfaction was made. Sins were removed. Sins were expiated. Remission was made. But in his time, it would have to happen again the following year, and then the following year, and then the following year, until... The fulfillment of this type was made when Christ came, who would only have to do it once. He went in and was put into the tomb. And when he resurrected, the linen cloths were left in that tomb, signifying that his work was done once and for all. This is what we celebrate at the communion table. This is what should be contemplated along with all the other things that we should reflect on for our own souls and the sin in our hearts. But this is what we celebrate at the communion table. Enjoy the feast. Amen.